and good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. What is speaking in tongues? Is it praying in tongues or praying in the Spirit? Is the sound uttered a foreign language unknown to the speaker? Is it a heavenly language or language of angels? Is it a private devotional language that wells up within us when we don't know how to speak to God? Is it a public act similar to prophecy, or is it limited? Um, and is it limited to public worship? If so, then what about interpreting uh, tongues? And what's the relationship between the phenomenon in Acts chapter two and what Saint Paul's writing about in First Corinthians twelve to fourteen? When the it, it, there are lots of questions surrounding speaking in tongues. They're exegetical. They are theological. They are. Uh, well, psychological, too. Uh, psychologists study uh, what is commonly called speaking in tongues, and uh, certainly cultural. With me right now is a man who's been doing extraordinary research in this whole area of speaking in tongues, Dr. Philip Blosser. He is author of the three-volume series uh, called Speaking in Tongues, a critical historical examination where I'm looking at volume one. Um, and Phil teaches, uh, he's a professor of philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, his other books include uh, Shaler's Critique of Kant's Ethics. Uh, he also served for many years as acting secretary and webmaster for the Max Shaler Society of North America. And he's chaired various panel discussions at the American Philosophical Association and the American Catholic Philosophical Association. Well, it's good to be with you face-to-face here. Thank you. It's, it's good of you to have me here. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's just talk about, first of all, why? I mean, you have a wide range of knowledge. You have m- many projects. And as I've gotten older, I realize how many I'm not going to get to. Why, why focus in on this question of speaking in tongues? Yeah, it's, it's something that's uh, sort of, uh, it, it, it's, it's out, of, out of the range of my typical work. Uh, my typical work is in philosophy. And in philosophy, I, uh, my dissertation was on Immanuel Kant and so forth. Uh, so this was something I really wasn't that interested in. Um, my parents were not uh, Pentecostals, but they were missionaries in Japan. They okay. were uh, Protestant. Oh, what the, what brand? They they were with – it's Baskin Robbins, you know, when you're Protestant. <laughs> so they were working with the Methodists in China, but they were um, working with the Mennonite Board of Missions okay. in yep. in uh, Japan. And uh, I myself was a Presbyterian, Dutch Reformed, um, um, went to Baptist church for a while, and, before, and an Anglican before becoming Catholic. Yes, so. I had, a, <laughs> I was, I was modeled in many ways like that. Yes, yes yeah, yeah, so. yeah. So uh, at one point in their in their um, mission career, they were um, engaged with some Pentecostals, and they 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 contributed uh, chapters to a book called My Personal Pentecost. Published by Herald Press, and they uh, it's a Mennonite publisher. Yes, and yep. they and they um, also spoke in tongues, okay. uh, but then that quickly dropped away from their lives, and uh, they sort of resumed their kind of evangelical, uh, typical okay. lives. But uh, what brought this to my attention was uh, at the seminary. Uh, over the years, we've hired more and more people that are in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, mm-hmm. and it was the point at which the rector um, uh, formed a commission to study the issue of the proper role of of uh, the charismatic renewal in a seminary where not everyone is uh, charismatic. And I had a sabbatical coming up. And so I thought, well, you know, I've never been interested in this subject particularly, but why not take my sabbatical and research the history of it? Yeah, sure. And so as I was doing that, I I, uh, came across on the web, I came across this other fellow, a Pentecostal in Canada who's a linguist, and he was researching this issue. 
So the two of us decided to join um, forces and, and, and produce this book. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's providential. Um, so let's, let's talk about this. As I, I started out saying, there's lots of questions that mm-hmm. we could ask about this. What is the current state of the question among scholars today? What, what are they yeah. looking at regarding yeah. speaking in tongues? I think um, the consensus today is that speaking in tongues is um, is um, a language which is not intelligible to the ordinary human understanding. That it's uh, um, it's uh, th- there's some there's some differences. Uh, some would say that it's ecstatic. Mm-hmm. That you're in an ecstatic state. Um, most of my colleagues in the charismatic renewal would not say that. Okay. They would say it's not an ecstatic language because you can turn it on or off at will. And, uh, um, uh, and, and I think this comes out of um, what we call in this first volume the, the redefinition of tongues in modern times. Mm. And there are two sort of uh, sources of this redefinition. One is the uh, higher critics or historical critics, we might call them today, people like Philip Schaff, mm-hmm. people like... Uh, uh, like uh, Neander and F.C. Bauer, people of that sort in the German um, fairly liberal schools who were looking for a way. They didn't believe in the miraculous tongues of Acts chapter 2. Okay. And so they were looking for a way to explain what Paul was describing in, in Corinthians, especially in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14. And so they were looking for some antecedents to this ecstatic view that they thought they found in uh, Paul, and they found the antecedents in the ancient um, oracles of uh, Delphi. And uh, so they went back to the ancient pagan uh, temple of Apollo, where the um, oracles spoke in an ecstatic state in languages that people couldn't understand. And the other source they went to was the Montanists. And the Montanists were... um, were dismissed as as unorthodox by uh, Eusebius of uh, of Caesarea, but but they also spoke in this this unintelligible way, and so those are the antecedents they found. So the higher critics, that's one source. The other source was um, the Pentecostal movement when it when it was born with the influence of uh, Charles Parham mm-hmm. and also uh, William Seymour in the early 1900s, and right. Between 1906 and 1908, the Pentecostals sent missionaries to Japan and to India, and they still had the traditional understanding of tongues as ordinary human languages that they miraculously could speak through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they went over there expecting the Holy Spirit to give them this gift of being able to communicate the gospel to the natives, and it didn't work. Didn't happen, yeah. And so when it came back, they were faced with a crisis— and what they did was slowly and quietly they accepted a redefinition of tongues as a spiritual language, a okay. language of the spirit, which eventually they joined with this higher critical view. And this is this now dominates all the, the commentaries and the textbooks and so forth. Interesting. This view, yeah. So, um, so... D- so, the, so Parham originally thought that uh, this was a... Uh, an actual human language. Yes, uh, that uh, the speaker would not have learned That's right. academically, but was uh, you might say uh, moved to speak this language um, when they were proclaiming the gospel. Yes. Okay. Right. And then, um, but it, 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 the, 
Of course, the nice thing about that definition is that you can test it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so when it came up to be tested, it didn't work. It didn't work. So then the yeah. question is, go back, uh, and how do we redefine this? So mm. did they ever did they did they come up with a singular definition? Um, the, the early Pentecostals did they mm-hmm. come up with a singular definition? Of speaking in tongues that uh, incorporate that unified uh, Acts chapter two, mm-hmm. where you have the foreign languages, and First Corinthians twelve to fourteen, where it's not quite certain. It's kind of mysterious right, right. what Paul's getting at there, but it doesn't seem, on the face mm-hmm. of it, to be foreign languages. Yeah, um, there there are a number of different ways in which the tongues um, after the Pentecostal movement got started have come to be defined. Some speak of a language of the spirit. Some speak of the language of angels, yeah, citing yeah. Uh, chapter 13 of uh, 1 Corinthians. And others speak of uh, a more widely accepted language I heard at Steubenville and other places is a personal or private language of prayer or praise. Right? right. You hear that right. quite often. Yep. yep. Um, and, and, and then you run into, as a philosopher, I know some people like... Uh, the philosophy of uh, Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein, he says a private language is a contradiction in terms because you can't communicate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. So um, does, the, does the Catholic Church have a definition of speaking in tongues that it would be considered um, definitive? I haven't run across a definition of tongues as such that's considered definitive. But what what I do see that is defined quite carefully is tongues is defined, tongues as, as in all the magisterial documents, is defined as an extraordinary gift of the Spirit and hence okay. miraculous. And uh, uh, this is something according to, to all the uh, Catholic um, uh, theologians of Catholic spirituality that I've read, um, they say this is something you can't simply turn on or turn off at will. It's a gift that comes. It's a gratis, gratis dada. Okay. It's given to you. You can't, you can't earn it. You can't, you can't ask for it. In, I guess you could ask for it in prayer, but it's not something that you can expect. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, in that sense, it would be spontaneous rather than It would learned? be spontaneous, yeah. yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be learned. Now, um, among my colleagues, there were those that... Um, tried to teach me to speak in tongues. Sure. As somebody that offered me some help, and, uh, and uh, yet it didn't work, right? Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and then since then, of course, I've come to a view that, that this understanding of tongues isn't quite, quite what the church has understood through her history by tongues, that it's an extraordinary gift, that it's not something that can be learned. Some of my colleagues would say, even if you can learn it, if, you, if it's a learned behavior, it could still perhaps be elevated to a supernatural level by the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. and then therefore made extraordinary in that sense. Uh, That's an interesting creative interpretation. I don't know that that would stand up to the test of history. I don't Mm -hmm. see any of that in history. What we see today, Mm -hmm. uh, Steubenville Conference, okay, Um, uh, is that a phenomenon that is well testified to by the fathers, uh, you know, uh, or is it uh, is that kind of thing rare, or is it non-existent? Um, well, it clearly exists 
in Steubenville and places we go, you know, Christ the King. Yeah, sure. I, I've been there and I've heard it. Yeah, I'm a member there. So yeah, yeah, sure. I, I went there with uh, my colleagues there one time and, you know, it was very, very wonderful service. Um, my colleague who uh, co-authored the book with me is a linguist. I mean, he's, he's amazing. He's just incredible. Let's hold it there. Uh, okay. i got the music coming sure. up. I, I don't want to cut you off. We'll come back and pick it up okay. at that point. All right. My guest, Dr. Uh, Philip Blosser, is co-author of Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. Uh, we've been talking about, well, he talks about the modern redefinition of tongues. And we're going to continue to unpack this. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Philip Losser. We are taking a look at uh, his work, co-authored with uh, Charles Sullivan, called Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. Uh, at the break, we were talking about, um, you were talking about the fellow who contributed uh, the foreword to right. the uh, book, and we're talking about the redefinitions. That right. Take it up from there. Uh, yeah. The, um, one of the forewords was written by... Uh, Dale M. Coulter, who's a professor of theology at Pentecostal Theological Seminary. He's an Oxford grad, and he wrote a very generous um, endorsement of our book, even though he disagrees with us. What I wanted to say about the co-author, Charles Sullivan, is that he's from the Pentecostal tradition in Canada, and he's a remarkable linguist. Uh, I mean, Syriac, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, he's just fluent, he's just, he's remarkable. And what he did was he set out to look back into church history, in the church fathers, just to try to verify and and vindicate what they in their Pentecostal meetings were doing in the way of tongues. And he was disappointed not to find any evidence of that. Interesting. Through all of church history. Hmm. So that was... Was there an, was, so I I would imagine Mm -hmm. then... Did anybody ever explain it as saying, well, uh, that's because uh, in some way the perfect has come and tongues have ceased? Mm. Yeah, there were those like St. Augustine who said, uh, now the church speaks in all the languages of the world, so there's no need for, for personal okay. interpretation of okay. tongues. Um, that that wasn't uh, a universal view okay. in the church, but there were those like he and, and a few others like uh, Chrysostom who said that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Were they concerned that there was no manif- that they, they couldn't identify speaking in tongues? Did they feel as though the church had lost? That's what had the church um, lost something? No. One of the remarkable discoveries, uh, first by Charles Sullivan and by myself, is that um, unlike the cessationists and their view, they they view the tongues as having ceased in the sub-apostolic age. But tongues actually have continued all the way through church history. There's yeah. remarkable evidence for that. Okay. And tongues always meant glossa or lingua. It always meant languages, right, human languages. And uh, one of the most interesting volumes, I think, uh, in our book is going to be volume three, which is about the tongues of Corinth. Oh. Because the tongues of Corinth are the tongues that are most that most lend themselves to a kind of spiritual interpretation. Right, right. However, there are church fathers like Epiphanius, Ambrosiaster, um, Chrysostom, and Cyril of Alexandra who said that what was going on in Corinth was that there was a liturgical language used for, for, um, for the liturgy, 
that was not known to the Greek-speaking Jews or the, or the Gentiles in Corinth. Yeah. And so the language was most likely Hebrew. It could have been Aramaic. Mm-hmm. But so what was needed was a bilingual interpreter, and that's what they insisted was going on. And what we also do in Volume 3 is we go all the way back in Jewish history and trace uh, a pattern in Jewish liturgy from Ezra the scribe, the Mm -hmm. return of the children of Israel from Babylon, uh, all the way up to the 6th century A.D., and that pattern of using an interpreter for a liturgical language that wasn't understood by most of the people was was continuous throughout almost that millennium. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that's so. That, when when will that be published? Um, that's going to the publisher on August the thirty first. So it will probably be out in October or so. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So with this, let's uh, go back to the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, mm-hmm. which many of our listeners are familiar with. Right. Um, it, there's. It's clear that uh, in some ways the origins of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Uh, have some connection with uh, Pentecostal experience, right. uh, even the the prominence of, of Dave Wilkerson's book, mm-hmm. um, you know, Crossing the Switchblade. Mm-hmm. And then there was John Sherrill's They Speak Other Tongues. Yes. Yes. So what, did, what is the relationship, how would you look at the relationship between uh, modern Pentecostalism and the Catholic Charismatic Renewal? I think there's definitely a connection there. Um, um, it's 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 a difficult issue to to sort out. You know, there, there are elements. I, I think when I look at what what is distinctive about the Chari- the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, the, the the main distinctives have to do with what they call the charisms. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, they're they're. There's nothing really distinctive. It's it's Catholic. Yeah, it's Catholic. Yeah, everything. Um, um, so so uh, when I look at the distinctives, then I go back and I look at sort of the connections that are drawn by my colleagues, some of my colleagues and others. Um, and uh, for example, uh, there's a, there's a connection that's made by um, <clears throat> by some of them with. Um, let me uh, find this quickly if I can. Sure. Um, where did, where did these ideas come from? Um, of course, there is the, 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 the New Pentecost emphasis in Vatican II. There's that. And then the, the books that you mentioned by Cheryl and mm-hmm. um, Wilkerson and so forth. And then uh, there's also a, a, a frequent mention of Sister Elena Guerra, hmm. uh, an Italian nun who insisted that Pentecost is not over and wrote an, um, and uh, Pope Leo XIII in response apparently wrote an encyclical on the Holy Spirit uh, in 1897, and on January the 1st, 1901, he invoked the Holy Spirit by singing the Veni Creator Spiritus on behalf of the entire church. And um, at at the same time, in a little Bible school in Kansas, uh, run by Charles Parham, mm-hmm. uh, there was a young lady named uh, Agnes Osman. I, Osman, yeah, that's yeah, right, that's right. Who... Um, who it was said she spoke in Chinese and a few languages like this. That, that was the supposition, and uh, and so the, the 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 general statement that I hear is that the Catholic Church at the time was not prepared for welcoming this new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That the bishops were somewhat tepid in their response. That's what I've been told, and uh, so it was through the 
Protestant Pentecostals that the Holy Spirit rekindled the, the life of the Spirit in the Catholic Church. Okay. That's what I hear. Okay. And um, I think that's an interesting point that could be discussed at length. Sure. You know? And it takes it well beyond uh, speaking in tongues. It does. Yeah. It, it does. The broader question of Much the charismatic gifts. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, with, with the... Um, uh, so it's always difficult to kind of sort out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we've got a redefinition, a historical redefinition of tongues uh, following the failure of Parham's belief that tongues were uh, foreign languages that would be given in um, when missionaries went out to preach the gospel in foreign lands, it gets redefined as some sort of spiritual language um, what does one do with that? I mean, I mean, I'm, mm. you know, I'm it's fine. You know, <laughs> if kind of a pragmatic approach to this, mm. in my mind is well, if it's helping uh, you grow yeah. in Christ, well, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, it becomes a bigger issue when you get to the liturgy, of course. Right. You know, and becomes a public matter. Right. Is there any history in Catholic thinking about tongues mm. as a private? devotional language there's which i i get yeah. i get the illogic of yeah. a language That's that is for yourself private, yeah. but I've, i'm gonna um but it's out there so th- th- there are claims along those lines but um when i've looked deeper into them they've been uh, rebutted okay. in, in various ways like in teresa of avila and so forth um but what i would say is that um this this book shouldn't be understood as kind of a bombshell on the playground of the charismatics. It's going to yeah. This disrupt. is not polemical. It's not polemical. Yeah. Um, what it I would say is that uh, the Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways. Uh, if this is something that uh, to which uh, a great spiritual uh, inner life is attached, I see no problem with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, however, I think one thing that needs to be acknowledged is that. Uh, historically, this is a novelty. It's, it's something new. Okay. It's something that there's no evidence for anything like this before the 1800s, 1830s or so. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the Irvingite movement? The Irvingite, Irvingite movement, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay. Um, the Catholic Church has never had a cessationist approach. That no. Has, I mean, it's always believed that the gifts and operations of the Holy Spirit that are described in the New Testament are going to persist. Absolutely. Uh, and and it, the question is, how do yeah. they persist? And you know, what's, the, uh, what's the proper definition of one thing or the other? Um, do, you, do you think that uh, there's a, a danger... In uh, Catholic charismatic renewal, that uh, of oh, oh, demanding. Uh, let me rephrase this. Let me rephrase this. Historic Pentecostalism believes that uh, speaking in tongues was the initial evidence yes. of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's not been adopted, has it, by the Catholic charismatic renewal? I think generally no. In principle, no. I think in practice, sometimes there are individuals who seem to suggest that. Okay. Uh, and I think that would be perhaps a danger. I think in our commission, when the report was made, that was acknowledged as something that should not be dogmatically asserted. Um, um, so, so I think you're right about that. Um, if I could go back to the issue of Please. the cessationists, though, 
there's, there's, there's something that's quite interesting. The cessationist movement is essentially anti-Catholic. And it was because the Catholics were evidencing or at least claiming so many miracles that the cessationists insisted that the miracles, the actual miracles, had ceased in the, right after the apostles, yeah. last apostles died. And with that, there's another thing, and that is the, the, the phrase, other tongues or unknown tongues or strange tongues, was interpolated into Scripture by the first Protestant uh, translators, starting with Tyndale, the Geneva Bible, and especially in the King James. Interesting. But the reason was they were attacking the Latin used by the Catholic Church as an unknown language. And mm. so they were saying um, th these are unprofitable, unknown tongues. The Church should be preaching and teaching in the vernacular language. Huh. Right? And, and so... Um, there's only one place in Scripture, and that's Acts 2, verse 4, I believe, where, where um, unknown tongues is used. But there it's used of foreign languages understood by the visitors to Jerusalem, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, phrases like praying in the Spirit, mm -hmm. uh, praying in tongues, is there a historical definition of these phrases in the Catholic tradition? Um, I, I would find it very hard to say there's a definitive definition. I do see phrases like that, you know, among various spiritual writers, right. uh, even in in um, in history, deep into history. But uh, I don't know that there's a definition as such, right. yeah. just as there's no definition of tongues as such. Yeah, yeah, and th and this is what this is what makes. Um, judging phenomena difficult i mean mm -hmm. is is what is what we're talking about what the new testament is talking mm -hmm. about and 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 trying to work that out the That's degree right. to which our own experience is used as a a validation mm -hmm. of the biblical uh, language um Tell me about the remainder of the volumes. This sure. Is, uh, volume one is the modern redefinition of tongues. Right. So the whole um, three-volume work is structured like a, like a, an excavation. So we start at the surface level, which is current times, with the Catholic charismatic renewal and the Toronto blessing and things of that sort. And then we dig down and see where this all came from. Okay. Right. So the first volume is the modern redefinition of tongues. The second volume is tongues through church history. Okay, good. And there we start with the 18th century. There's, there's a great treatise by Benedict the 14th on tongues. It's brilliant. A lot of time on this, Phil. Are we? Okay, we'll, and, let's talk again. Yeah, yeah we'll do All that. Right. Dr. Phil Blosser, Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination.